0: Section twenty eight of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume two, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter twelve, verses twenty seven to thirty three. Man's sin imputed to Christ, Christ's internal conflict, God's voice heard from heaven, Christ's prophecy about his being lifted up. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John chapter twelve, verses twenty seven to thirty three now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this cause came i unto this hour father glorify thy name then there came a voice from heaven saying i have both glorified it and will glorify it again the people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered others said an angel spake to him jesus answered and said this voice came not because of me but for your sakes now is the judgment of this world now shall the prince of this world be cast out and i if i be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me this he said signifying what death he should die these verses show us what saint peter meant when he said there are some things hard to be understood in scripture second peter chapter three verse sixteen there are depths here which we have no line to fathom thoroughly this need not surprise us or shake our faith the bible would not be a book given by inspiration of god if it did not contain many things which pass man's finite understanding with all its difficulties it contains thousands of passages which the most unlearned may easily comprehend even here if we look steadily at these verses we may gather from them lessons of no mean importance we have first in these verses a great doctrine indirectly proved that doctrine is the imputation of man's sin to christ we see the savior of the world the eternal son of god troubled and disturbed in mind now is my soul troubled we see him who could heal diseases with a touch cast out devils with a word and command the waves and winds to obey him in great agony and conflict of spirit now how can this be explained to say as some do that the only cause of our lord's trouble was the prospect of his own painful death on the cross is a very unsatisfactory explanation at this rate it might justly be said that many a martyr has shown more calmness and courage than the son of god such a conclusion is to say the least most revolting yet this is the conclusion to which men are driven if they adopt the modern notion that christ's death was only a great example of self-sacrifice nothing can ever explain of our lord's trouble of soul both here and in gethsemane except the old doctrine that he felt the burden of man's sin pressing him down it was the mighty weight of a world's guilt imputed to him and meeting on his head which made him groan and agonize and cry now is my soul troubled for ever let us cling to that doctrine not only as untying the knot of the passage before us but as the only ground of solid comfort for the heart of a christian that our sins have been really laid on our divine substitute and borne by him and that his righteousness is really imputed to us and accounted ours this is the real warrant for christian peace and if any man asks how we know that our sins were laid on christ we bid him read such passages as that which is before us and explain them on any other principle if he can christ has borne our sins carried our sins, groaned under the burden of our sins, been troubled in soul by the weight of our sins, and really taken away our sins. This, we may rest assured, is sound doctrine. This is scriptural theology. We have, secondly, in these verses, a great mystery unfolded. That mystery is the possibility of much inward conflict of soul without sin. We cannot fail to see in the passage before us a mighty mental struggle in our blessed savior of its depth and intensity we can probably form very little conception but the agonizing cry my soul is troubled the solemn question what shall i say the prayer of suffering flesh and blood father save me from this hour the meek confession for this cause i came unto this hour the petition of a perfectly submissive will father glorify thy name what does all this mean surely there can be only one answer these sentences tell of a struggle within our saviour's breast a struggle arising from the natural feelings of one who was perfect man and as man could suffer all that man is capable of suffering yet he in whom this struggle took place was the holy son of god in him is no sin first john chapter three verse five there is a fountain of comfort here for all true servants of Christ which ought never to be overlooked. Let them learn from their lord's example that inward conflict of soul is not necessarily in itself a sinful thing. Too many, we believe, from not understanding this point, go heavily all their days on their way to heaven. They fancy they have no grace because they find a fight in their own hearts. They refuse to take comfort in the gospel because they feel a battle between the flesh and the spirit let them mark the experience of their lord and master and lay aside their desponding fears let them study the experience of his saints in every age from st paul downwards and understand that as christ had inward conflicts so must christians expect to have them also to give way to doubts and unbelief no doubt is wrong and robs us of our peace there is a faithless despondency unquestionably which is blameworthy and must be resisted repented of and brought to the fountain for all sin that it may be pardoned but the mere presence of fight and strife and conflict in our hearts is in itself no sin the believer may be known by his inward warfare as well as by his outward peace we have thirdly in these verses a great miracle exhibited that miracle is the heavenly voice described in this passage a voice which was heard so plainly that people said it thundered proclaiming, I have glorified my name, and will glorify it again. This wondrous voice was heard three times during our Lord's earthly ministry. Once it was heard at his baptism, when the heavens were opened and the Holy Ghost descended on him. Once it was heard at his transfiguration, when Moses and Elias appeared for a season with him before Peter, James, and John. Once it was heard here at Jerusalem, in the midst of a mixed crowd of disciples and unbelieving Jews, on each occasion we know that it was the voice of god the father but why and wherefore this voice was only heard on these occasions we are left to conjecture the thing was a deep mystery and we cannot now speak particularly of it let it suffice us to believe that this miracle was meant to show the intimate relations and unbroken union of god the father and god the son throughout the period of the Son's earthly ministry at no point during his incarnation was there a time when the eternal father was not close to him though unseen by man let us also believe that this miracle was meant to signify to bystanders the entire approval of the son by the father as the messiah the redeemer and the saviour of men that approval the father was pleased to signify by voice three times as well as to declare by signs and mighty deeds performed by the son in his name these things we may well believe but when we have said all we must confess that the voice was a mystery we may read of it with wonder and awe but we cannot explain it we have lastly in these verses a great prophecy delivered the lord jesus declared i if i be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me concerning the true meaning of these words there can be but one opinion in any candid mind they do not mean as is often supposed that if the doctrine of christ crucified is lifted up and exalted by ministers and teachers it will have a drawing effect on hearers this is undeniably a truth but it is not the truth of the text they simply mean that the death of christ on the cross would have a drawing effect on all mankind his death as our substitute and sacrifice for our sins would draw multitudes out of every nation to believe on him and receive him as their saviour by being crucified for us and not by ascending a temporal throne he would set up a kingdom in the world and gather subjects to himself how thoroughly this prophecy has been fulfilled for eighteen centuries the history of the church is abundant proof whenever christ crucified has been preached and the story of the cross fully told souls have been converted and drawn to christ just as iron filings are drawn to a magnet in every part of the world no truth so exactly suits the wants of all children of adam of every color climate and language as the truth about christ crucified and the prophecy is not yet exhausted it shall yet receive a more complete accomplishment a day shall come when every knee shall bow before the lamb that was slain and every tongue confess that he is lord to the glory of god the father he that was lifted up on the cross shall yet sit on the throne of glory and before him shall be gathered all nations friends and foes each in their own order shall be drawn from their graves and appear before the judgment seat of christ let us take heed in that day that we are found on his right hand notes john chapter twelve verses twenty seven to thirty three verse twenty seven now is my soul troubled etc etc this remarkable verse comes in somewhat abruptly yet the connection is not hard to trace our lord had just been speaking of his own atoning death the thought and prospect of that death appears to draw from him the expressions of this verse which i will now examine in order now is my soul troubled this sentence implies a sudden strong mental agony which came over our lord troubling distressing and harassing him what was it from not from the mere foresight of a painful death on the cross and the bodily suffering attending it no doubt human nature even when sinless naturally revolts from pain and suffering yet mere bodily pain has been endured for weeks by many a martyr and even by heathen fanatics in India, without a groan or a murmur. No. It was the weight of the world's imputed sin, laid upon our Lord's head, which pressed him downward, and made him cry, Now is my soul troubled. It was the sense of the whole burden of man's transgression, imputed to him, which, as he drew near the cross, weighed him down so tremendously. It was not his bodily sufferings, either anticipated or felt, but our sins which here at Gethsemane and Calvary agonized and racked his soul let us notice here the reality of christ's substitution for us he was made a curse for us and sin for us and he felt it for a time most deeply Galatians chapter three verse thirteen second corinthians chapter five verse twenty one those who deny the doctrine of substitution imputation and atonement can never explain the expressions before us satisfactorily poole remarks there is a vast difference between this trouble of spirit in christ and that which is in us our troubles are upon reflection for our own sins and the wrath of our god is due to us therefore his troubles were for the wrath of god due to us for our sins our troubles are because we have personally grieved god his were because those given to him had offended god we are afraid of our eternal condemnation he was only afraid by a natural fear of death which naturally riseth higher according to the kind of death we die our troubles have mixture of despair distrust sinful horror there is no such thing in his trouble our troubles in their natural tendency are killing and destroying only by accident and the wise ordering of divine providence do they prove advantageous and lead us to him his trouble in the very nature of it was pure and clean and sanative and healing but that he was truly troubled and that such a trouble did truly agree to his office as mediator and is a great foundation of peace quiet and satisfaction to us is out of question by some of these stripes we are healed we should remember and admire the prayer in the litany of the greek church by thine unknown sufferings good lord deliver us Rollock observes here if you ask me what the divine nature in christ was doing when he said my soul is troubled and whether it was divided asunder from his human nature i reply that it was not divided but contained itself or held itself passive while the human nature was suffering if it had exercised itself in its full power and glory our lord could not possibly have suffered the whole of rollock's remarks on this difficult verse are singularly good and deserve close study hutcheson observes the rise and cause of this trouble was thus the godhead hiding itself from the humanity's sense and the father letting out not only an apprehension of sufferings to come but a present taste of the horror of his wrath due to man for sin christ was amazed perplexed and overwhelmed with it in his humanity and no wonder since he had the sins of all the elect laid upon him by imputation to suffer for hengstenberg remarks the only solution of this extreme trouble is the vicarious significance of the sufferings and death of christ if our chastisement was upon him in order that we might have peace then in him must have been concentrated all the horror of death he bore the sin of the world and the wages of that sin was death death therefore must to him assume its most frightful form the physical suffering was nothing compared to the immeasurable suffering of soul which impended over the Redeemer, and the full greatness and depth of which he clearly perceives. Therefore, in Hebrews chapter 5, or 7, a fear is described as that which pressed with such awful weight upon our Lord. When God freed him from that, he saved him from death. Thus, when the suffering of Christ is apprehended as vicarious and voluntary, all the accompanying circumstances can be easily understood let us note the exceeding guilt and sinfulness of sin the thing which made even God's own son who had power to work works that none else did besides him groan and cry my soul is troubled can be no light thing he that would know the full measure of sin and guilt should mark attentively this verse and the expressions used by our lord at gethsemane and calvary it is worth noticing that this verse matthew chapter twenty six verse thirty eight and Mark, chapter 14, verse 34, are the only three places in the Gospels where our Lord speaks of my soul. The word now, I suspect, is emphatic. Now, at this special time, my soul has begun to be specially troubled. And what shall I say? These words are thought by some, as Theophylact, Grotius, Bloomfield, and Barnes, to be wrongly translated in our English version. They would render them, and what? what is my duty what does this hour require of me shall i say save me etc etc i much prefer our english version as it is i believe the question is strongly significant of the agony and conflict through which our lord's soul was passing what shall i say under this sense of pressing overwhelming trouble my human nature bids me say one thing acting alone and urging me alone my knowledge of the purpose for which i came into the world bids me say another thing what then shall I say? Such a question as this is a strong proof of our Lord's real, true humanity. Rollick observes, What shall I say? is the language of the highest perplexity and anxiety of mind. In the height of anguish is the height of perplexity, so that a man knows not what to say or do. The Lord found deliverance in prayer, but the perpetual cry of the lost will be, What shall I say? What shall I do? from that perplexity and anguish they will never be delivered bangal remarks jesus says what shall i say not what shall i choose compare with this the different expression of st paul what i shall choose i wish not for i am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart philippians chapter 1 verse 22 euclempadius thinks the question means in what words shall i unfold my pain or the bitterness and ingratitude of the jews I prefer taking it as the language of perplexity and distress the presence of two natures in our lord jesus christ's person seems clearly taught when we compare the language used by our lord in this verse with the language of the fifth and seventeenth chapters of this gospel here we see unmistakably our lord's true humanity there on the other hand we see no less plainly his divinity here he speaks as man there as god father save me from this hour this is undoubtedly a prayer to be saved from or delivered from the agony and suffering of this hour it is the language of a human nature which though sinless could suffer and instinctively shrank from suffering it would not have been real human nature if it had not so shrunk and recoiled the idea of the prayer is just the same as that of the prayer in gethsemane let this cup pass from me matthew chapter 26 verse 39 let us learn from our lord's example that there is nothing sinful in praying to be delivered from suffering so long as we do it in submission to the will of god there is nothing wrong in a sick person saying father make me well so long as the prayer is offered with proper qualifications rollick observes in agony there is a certain forgetfulness of all things except present pain this seems to be the case of our lord here Yet even here he turns to his father, showing that he never loses the sense of his father's love, the lost in hell will never turn to the father. It is worth noticing that our Lord speaks of the father and my father at least 110 times in John's Gospel. But for this cause came I unto this hour. This sentence is an elliptical way of declaring our Lord's entire submission to his father's will. In the matter of the prayer he had just prayed but i know that for this cause i came into the world and have reached this hour to suffer as i am now suffering and to agonize as i am now agonizing i do not refuse the cup if it be thy will i am willing to drink it only i tell thee my feelings with entire submission to thy will we may surely learn from the whole verse that christians have no cause to despair because they feel trouble of soul because they feel perplexed and know not what to say in the agony of inward conflict because their nature shrinks from pain and cries to god to take it away in all this there is nothing wicked or sinful it was the expression of the human nature of our lord jesus christ himself and in him was no sin rollick says this is the language of one recollecting himself and collecting his thoughts to remember something besides his agony and pain father glorify thy name this passage seems the conclusion of the strife and agony of soul which came over our lord at this particular period it is as though he said i leave the matter in thy hand o my father do what thou seest best glorify thy name and thy attributes in me do what is meet for setting forth thy glory in the world if it be for thy glory that i should suffer i am willing to suffer even unto the bearing of the world's sins I see in the whole event here described a short summary of what took place afterwards more fully at gethsemane there is a remarkable parallelism at every step a does our lord say here my soul is troubled just so he said in gethsemane my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death matthew chapter 26 verse 38 b does our lord say here father save me from this hour just so he says in gethsemane o oh, my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me matthew chapter 26 verse 39 c does our lord say here for this cause came i unto this hour just so he says in gethsemane if this cup may not pass away from me except i drink it thy will be done matthew chapter 26 verse 42 d does our lord say finally father glorify thy name just so our lord says lastly the cup which my father hath given me shall i not drink it john chapter twenty eight verse eleven the brief prayer which our lord here offers we should remember is the highest greatest thing that we can ask god to do the utmost reach of the renewed will of a believer is to be able to say always father glorify thy name in me do with me what thou wilt only glorify thy name the glory of god after all is the end for which all things were created Paul's joyful hope, he told the Philippians when a prisoner at Rome, was that in all things by life or death Christ might be magnified in his body. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Rollock says, This is the language of one who now forgets the agony and pain, remembers only his father's glory, and desires it even together with his own passion and death. He also remarks that the experience of God's saints in great trouble is in a sense much the same. For a time they forget everything but present pain. By and by they rise above their sufferings and remember only God's glory. Then came there a voice from heaven. This voice was undoubtedly a great miracle. God the Father was heard speaking audibly with man's voice to the Son. Three times in our Lord's ministry this miracle took place. First at his baptism, secondly at his transfiguration, thirdly just before his crucifixion rarely has the voice of god been heard by large crowds of unconverted men here at mount sinai and perhaps at our lord's baptism are the only three occasions recorded of course we can no more explain this wonderful miracle than any other miracle in god's word we can only reverently believe and admire it the intimate nearness of the father to the son all through his ministry is one of the many thoughts which may occur to our minds as we consider the miracle our lord was never left alone his father was always with him though men knew it not how could it be otherwise so far as concerned his divine nature he and the father were one how any one in the face of this passage can deny that the father and the son are two distinct persons is very hard to understand when one person is heard speaking to another common sense seems to point out that there are two persons and not one Hammond maintains that there really was a loud clap of thunder, as well as a voice from heaven. Burkitt also seems to think the same, and compares it to the thunder which accompanied the giving of the law at Sinai. I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. This solemn sentence, far more solemn in the pithy and expressive Greek language than it can possibly be made in our own translation, admits, as Augustine says, of being interpreted two ways. A. It may be applied solely and entirely to the lord jesus christ himself it would then be a special declaration of the father to the son i have glorified my name in thy incarnation thy miracles thy words thy works i will yet glorify it again in thy voluntary suffering for mankind thy death thy resurrection and thy ascension lightfoot thinks there is a special reference to our lord's conflict with the devil I have glorified my name in the victory thou formerly didst obtain over Satan's temptation in the wilderness. I will glorify my name again in the victory thou shalt have in this conflict also. B. It may be applied to the whole course of God's dealing with creation from the beginning. It would then be a declaration of the father I have continually glorified my name in all the dispensations which have been before the flood, in the days of the patriarchs, in the time of Moses, under the law, under the judges, under the kings. I will yet glorify it once more at the end of this dispensation by finishing up the types and figures and accomplishing the work of man's redemption. Which of these views is the true one? I cannot pretend to decide. Either make excellent divinity and is reasonable and consistent. But we have no means of ascertaining which is correct. If I have any opinion on the point, I lead to the second view. Verse 29 the people thereof etc this verse apparently is meant to describe the various opinions of the crowd which stood around our lord about the voice which spoke to him some who were standing at some little distance and were not listening very attentively said it thundered others who were standing close by and paying great attention declared that an invisible being an angel must have spoken both parties entirely agreed on one point something uncommon had happened an extraordinary noise had been heard which to some sounded like thunder and to others like words, but nobody said they heard nothing at all. That the voice must have been very loud seems proved by the supposition that it was thunder. That the reality and existence of angels formed part of the popular creed of the Jews seems proved by the readiness of some to take up the idea that an angel had spoken. Some think that the Greeks before mentioned, not knowing the Hebrew language in which probably the voice spoke, fancied the voice was thunder and the Jews of the crowd thought it was an angel's voice. Verse 30 Jesus answered, This voice, not me, your sakes. In this verse our Lord tells the Jews the purpose of this miraculous voice. It was not for his sake, to comfort him and help him, but for their sakes, to be a sign and a witness to them. The voice could tell him nothing that he did not know. It was meant to show them what they did not know or doubted. The sentence would be more literally rendered not on account of me was this voice but on account of you it was just one more public miraculous evidence of his divine mission and apparently the last that was given the first evidence was a voice at his baptism and the last a voice just before his crucifixion augustine remarks here christ shows that his voice was not to make known to him what he already knew but to them to whom it was meet to be made known verse thirty one now is the judgment of this world this is undeniably a difficult saying the difficulty lies principally in the meaning of the word judgment a some as barnes think that it means this is the crisis or most important time in the world's history i cannot receive this i doubt whether the greek word used here will ever bear the signification of our word crisis that our Lord's atoning death was a crisis in the world's history is undoubtedly true, but that is not the question. The question is, what do the Greek words mean? B. Some, as Theophylact and Euthymius, think it means, Now is the vengeance of this world, I will cast out him by whom the world has been enslaved. I doubt this also. C some as wingle think that judgment means the discrimination or separation between the believing and unbelieving in the world compare john chapter nine verse thirty nine d some as calvin brentius beza Bucer, hutcheson Flacius, and gauter think that judgment means the reformation or setting in right order of the world e some as grotius gerhard poole toletus and allapati think judgment means the deliverance and setting free from bondage of this world f some as Pierce, think it means now is the jewish world or nation about to be judged or condemned for rejecting me g some as bengal think it means now is the judgment concerning this world as to who is hereafter to be the rightful possessor of it i take it that the word we render judgment can only mean condemnation and that the meaning of this sentence is this now has arrived the season when a sentence of condemnation shall be passed by my death on the whole order of things which has prevailed in the world since the creation the world shall no longer be let alone and left to the devil and to the powers of darkness i am about to spoil them of their dominion by my redeeming work and to condemn and set aside the dark godless order of things which has so long prevailed upon earth it has been long winked at and tolerated by my father. The time has come when it will be tolerated no longer. This very week, by my crucifixion, the religious systems of the world shall receive a sentence of condemnation. This seems Bullinger and Rollock's view, and I agree with it. In order to realize the full meaning of this sentence, we must call to mind the extraordinary condition of all the world, with the exception of Palestine before Christ's death, to an extent of which now we can form no conception it was a world without god plunged in idolatry worshiping devils in open rebellion against god compare first corinthians chapter 10 verse 20 when christ died this order of things received its sentence of condemnation rollick says i understand by this judgment the condemnation of that sin of which the world was so full when christ came and which had reigned from adam to moses of this undisturbed reign of idolatry christ's advent made an end augustine on this verse says the devil kept possession of mankind holding men as criminals bound over to punishment by the handwriting of their sins having dominion in the hearts of the unbelieving dragging them deceived and captive to the worship of the creature for which they had deserted the creator by the faith of christ confirmed by his death and resurrection through his blood shed for the remission of sins thousands of believing persons obtain deliverance from the dominion of the devil are joined to the body of christ and quickened by his spirit as faithful members under so great a head this it was that he called judgment now shall prince of this world cast out in this remarkable sentence there can be no doubt that satan is meant by the prince of this world up to the time of our lord's redeeming work, the entire world was in a certain sense completely under his dominion. When christ came and died for sinners, Satan's usurped power was broken and received a deadly blow. Heathenism and idolatry and devil-worship no longer governed all the earth except palestine as they had done for four thousand years because undisturbed. In a wonderful and mysterious manner, Christ on the cross spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly triumphing over them colossians chapter 2 verse 15 to this victory our lord clearly refers now in this week by my vicarious death as man's redeemer on the cross satan the prince of this world shall receive a deadly blow and be dethroned from his supremacy over man and cast out the head of the serpent shall be bruised of course our lord did not mean that satan would be cast out of the world entirely and tempted no more that will be done at the second advent, we know from Revelation chapter 20. But it was not done at the first. It only means that he should be cast out of a large portion of the dominion and power and undisturbed authority that he had hitherto exercised over men's souls. The result of the change which took place in this respect when Christ died is perhaps not enough considered by Christians we probably have a very inadequate idea of the awful extent to which Satan carried his dominion over men's souls before the kingdom of heaven was set up. Bodily possession, familiar spirits, wizards, heathen oracles, heathen mysteries, all these are things which before the crucifixion of Christ were much more real and powerful than we suppose. And why? Because the prince of this world had not yet been cast out he had a power over men's bodies and minds far greater than he has now when christ came to the cross he did battle with satan won a victory over him stripped him of a large portion of his authority and cast him out of a large portion of his dominion does not the whole of the vision in revelation chapter twelve verses seven to seventeen point to this this is the view supported by lightfoot this sentence clearly shows the reality and power of the devil HOW any ANYONE CAN SAY THERE IS NO DEVIL IN THE FACE OF SUCH EXPRESSIONS AS THE PRINCE OF THIS WORLD IS STRANGE. HOW any ANYONE CAN SCOFF AND THINK LIGHTLY OF A BEING OF SUCH MIGHTY POWER IS STRANGER STILL. THE TRUE CHRISTIAN, HOWEVER, MAY ALWAYS TAKE COMFORT IN THE THOUGHT THAT SATAN IS A VANQUISHED ENEMY. HE WAS STRIPPED OF A LARGE PART OF HIS DOMINION AT CHRIST'S FIRST ADVENT. HE IS STILL GOING TO AND FRO, SEEKING WHOM HE MAY DEVOUR, BUT HE SHALL BE COMPLETELY BOUND AT THE SECOND ADVENT. 1 peter chapter 5 verse 8 romans chapter 26 verse 20 revelation chapter 20 verse 2 the whole verse appears to me inexplicable unless we receive and hold the doctrine of christ's death being an atonement and satisfaction for man's sin and a payment for man's debt to god that thought underlies the deep statement made here of the mighty work about to be done by our lord in the week of his crucifixion against the prince of this world once adopt the modern notion that christ's death was only a beautiful example of self-sacrifice and martyrdom for truth like that of Socrates and you can make nothing of this verse hold on the other hand the old doctrine that christ's death was the payment of man's debt and the redemption of man's soul from the power of sin and the devil and the whole verse is lighted up and made comparatively clear augustine observes the lord in this verse was foretelling that which he knew that after his passion and glorifying throughout the whole world many a people would believe, within whose hearts the devil once was, whom when by faith they renounced, then is he cast out. He also says that what formerly took place in a few hearts, like those of the patriarchs and prophets, or a very few individuals, is now foretold as about to take place in many a great people. Euthymius remarks that as the first Adam— by eating of the tree was cast out of paradise so the second adam by dying on the tree cast the devil out of his usurped dominion over the world bucer thinks there is a latent reference to our lord's former words about the strong man armed keeping his house till a stronger comes upon him and spoils him luke chapter eleven verses twenty one and twenty two verse thirty two and i lifted up draw all men unto me in this remarkable verse our lord plainly points to his own crucifixion or being lifted up on the cross it is the same expression that he used to nicodemus as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up john chapter 3 verse 15 the promise i will draw all men unto me must i think mean that our lord after his crucifixion would draw men of all nations and kindreds and tongues to himself to believe on him and be his disciples once crucified he would become a great centre of attraction and draw to himself and release from the devil's usurped power vast multitudes of all peoples and countries to be his servants and followers up to this time all the world had blindly hastened after satan and followed him after christ's crucifixion great numbers would turn away from the power of satan and become christians the promise doubtless looks even further than this it points to a time when every knee shall bow to the crucified son of god and every tongue confess that jesus is the lord the whole world shall finally become the kingdom of our god and of his christ of course the words must not be pressed too far we must not think that they support the deadly heresy of universal salvation we must not suppose them to mean that all men shall be actually saved by christ's crucifixion any more than we must suppose that christ actually lights everyone in the world See John chapter 1, verse 9. The analogy of other texts shows plainly that the only reasonable sense is that Christ's crucifixion would have a drawing influence on men of all nations, Gentiles as well as Jews. Scripture and facts under our eyes both show us that all persons are not actually drawn to Christ. Many live and die and are lost in unbelief. The word draw is precisely the same that is used in John chapter 6, verse 44 no man can come to me except the father draw him. Yet I doubt whether the meaning is precisely the same. In the one case it is the drawing of election when the father chooses and draws souls. In the other case it is the drawing influence which Christ exercises on laboring and heavy-laden sinners when he draws them by his Spirit to come to him and believe. The subjects of either drawing are the same men and women, and the drawing in each case is irresistible. All who are drawn to believe are drawn both by the father and the son without this drawing no one would ever come to christ the idea of some that the verse may be applied to the lifting up or exalting of christ by ministers in their preaching is utterly baseless and a mere play upon words that the preaching of christ will always do good more or less and draw souls to christ by god's blessing is no doubt true but it is not the doctrine of this text and ought to be dismissed as an unfair accommodation of scriptural language Euthymius observes that the mission of christ began to draw souls at once as in the case of the penitent thief and the centurion verse 53 this he said what death die the explanatory comment of st john on our lord's words is evidently intended to make his meaning plain he spoke of being lifted up, with a special reference to his being lifted up on the cross. Of course, it is just possible that the reference is to the drawing of all men, and that it means he spoke of drawing all men, with a reference to his death being a sacrificial and atoning death which would affect the position of all men. But I doubt this being so correct a view as the other. He should die is literally, he was about to die it is curious that in the face of this verse some as Bucer and diodati maintain that our lord by being lifted up refers to his exaltation into heaven after his resurrection they think that then and not till then could he be said to draw men i cannot see anything in this our lord appears to me to teach plainly that after his crucifixion and through the virtue of his crucifixion he would draw men that lifting up means crucifixion is in my judgment plainly taught by john chapter three verse fifteen end of section twenty eight